today, I want to look at the Bible, me and James together, James and I together. We're going to look at a passage where we look at Jesus as a prototype of, uh, remember Joan Osborne, she sang the song in the 1990s. She asked the great question, the profound question, what if God was one of us? And we get to know the answer to that question in seeing Christ. Christ was God become a human being in order that we can know what God is like. And therein as a church, we say we want to become like Jesus. Now we're going to look at the scripture with a view to saying how do we become like Christ? What do we learn about Jesus? Today, a little bit different, I'm going to preach the first 10 to 12 minutes of the sermon, and then James is going to come and finish off the final two-thirds. I'm going to do one-third, he's going to do two-thirds. Now, most of us will know who James is, but if you don't know who James is, let me tell you a little bit about this guy. James, just wave quickly. He's this guy over here wearing the pink shirt. We've got to talk about that. Um, salmon, sorry, salmon. Light peach, or uh, anyway... He's an outstanding young man. He is our leader for Frequency, which is our teenage ministry in our church. He's finishing his third year at uh, George, Whitfield, George Whitfield Bible College this year. He's an outstanding young man. He's already a great communicator and a person with real substance. I'm not talking him up. This is the real deal. You'll know in about 12 minutes' time exactly what I'm talking about. And so check your watches, guys. I'm setting mine and my stopwatch now. Um, there it goes. We're live. Okay, so let's shift our attention to the screen. We're answering the question, who are you becoming? We're looking at the life of Jesus right early in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. Let's read together. I'm going to read for the first four verses, the book of Mark chapter 1, reading from verse 35. Follow along on the screen and then uh, we'll, we'll look together. And this is Jesus now. Jesus rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place. Can you say that after me? Desolate place. And there he prayed. Simon, this is Jesus' two ICs, number one disciple. Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Let's pray together and then we'll, re we'll get into this text together. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. Thank you for your word, God. Would you come and rest, Holy Spirit, on each and every single one of us? God, whether, uh, whether we've been following Jesus for decades or whether we're skeptically searching for what, what this life is really about, God, we invite you to speak to us today from your word. Teach us about life. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Let's go into this. The big idea of the text we're going to read, and there's going to be a few more verses James is going to unpack a little bit later, is we've been looking at the subject of the good news. The good news, as Mark said to us in the preceding weeks, is that, uh, that, the, that the Son of God has come as our Savior King. And this is good news for us. This is good news for us as individuals. Today, we're going to learn something about the good news. Today, we learn that the good news gives us personal priorities. The good news comes personally to us, and it also helps us prioritize things in our lives. Uh, the good news is not just this intangible, out there force, but actually the gospel comes, and it impacts our lives, and it impacts our, not just our hearts, but how we physically live, what we give ourselves to. And so the, the tangibleness of the good news happens as it helps us prioritize things in life. 
these 10 verses give us a window into Jesus' priorities. We literally get to see a window into the life of Christ and what Jesus prioritized most in the world. And so I'm going to be looking first at Jesus' private priorities. And then James is going to pick up a little later with Jesus' public practices and and, uh, public priorities. So we're looking at this personal aspect of the good news, that it shapes our priorities. I'm going to be looking at the personal uh, uh, private priorities and James, the public priorities. Does that make sense so far? We've got a framework for where we're going. Let's look at this text together. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed And he went into a desolate place, and there he prayed. One of the things we said at the beginning of the year, can anyone remember? Practice makes? We've got a, I've heard some there. Practice, we think in culture, makes perfect. Sun Valley, the school teach my children, practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes progress. It's very nice and politically correct, I get it. But today, this year in our church, practices make people. You are the culmination of your habits. You are the culmination of your practices. What you do regularly all the time through your days, weeks, months, and years adds up to the culmination of who you're becoming. I say the word practices because practices are better than habits. Habits is what I do when I bite my nails. That's, that, that's okay. It's something I do regularly, but it's not as good as a practice, something I deliberately give myself to. This year, we're speaking about practices make people. So what are the practices that made Jesus who he was? There's certain practices that are like superfood for soul change. Practices are like superfood for soul change. And we learn about this one of silence and solitude from Jesus. The context is this. Jesus has just had the busiest day of ministry in his life. He's, got, he's pulled an all-nighter. He's been, um, he's been ministering to people. Every sick person in the village of Capernaum, every person oppressed by evil has been brought to him. He's healed them all. He's gone to bed that night tired and spent. You know, you know that feeling when you're spent from doing good things and your head hits the pillow, it's been good. But if ever there was a cause to hit snooze in the morning, it was after that day. And yet Jesus doesn't hit snooze on the alarm. What we learn of Jesus is early in the morning, before everyone else, he gets up and he gets alone with God. He goes to a desolate place. The, the Greek word there for desolate place is eremos. It, it can mean alone. It can mean um, wilderness sometimes is translated. Uh, sometimes it means solitary place. But the big idea behind this word is Jesus is seeking alone time in the quiet with God. Alone time in the quiet with God. It's silence and it's solitude together. Time to be quiet Time to be still, time to slow down, to be present in the presence of God. Ministry places all sorts of demands on Jesus' attention. There's emotional demands. Remember, Jesus gets to interact with people in their worst states often. It's like in their worst places of sickness, in their worst moments of pain, in in, in the most difficult moments of being oppressed by evil. That's constantly Jesus is confronting and encountering people. and That emotionally impacts you. The mental strain. Remember, the Pharisees and the religious leaders constantly trying to outwit him and trick him, getting him to say something wrong. So there's this emotional kind of weight that's on him. There's this mental withdrawal that he's constantly making. What about the weight of responsibilities on on his life. I mean, literally the weight of the world was on Jesus' shoulders. That's why it's not on your shoulders and my shoulders. And when we live like the weight of the world is on our shoulders, we've actually stepped into Jesus' place. 
where the weight of the world was literally resting on his shoulders. This was a guy who knew what it was to carry weight in the world. And yet Jesus regularly pressed pause and got quiet and alone with the Father. It's this time alone with God that grounded his identity, that clarified his calling, that that calibrated his emotional equilibrium. And he came away from these times of silence and solitude able to know what to say yes to in life. And more importantly, maybe even to know what he could say no to in life. What we see of Jesus here is Jesus is energized and centered by his private life, not by his public life. Jesus was a person who got plenty done. But critically, it was his private life that fueled his public life. And this is what makes for a deep person. We live in an age where identity and energy is sought in the public place. Yet Jesus was energized and secured in private. He wasn't energized and secured by how many followers he had. By how many likes he got maybe. Or how many people liked him. And how many people didn't like him. This wasn't the source of Jesus' identity. This wasn't what anchored and what secured him. Rather, his commissioning place wasn't what others said and thought of him. His commissioning place was the regular quiet, alone time with the Father that underpinned his life. This is what makes for a deep and a stable person. Can we bang up that picture, Robin, of the tree with the roots, please? Just Christ was, this is a picture of something of Christ's life. There's a very fruitful tree, but what's underpinning this fruitful tree is this private world that goes deep into who God is, regularly driving his roots down into the person of God, quieting the busyness of life and drawing from God uh, what he needed to be the person he'd called to become. Jesus' practices meant that he had deep roots. This is what meant that he was such a, such a fruitful person, but also such a stable person as well. When we're fueled and driven by our external lives, in reality, we're settling for reactionary lives. We're always reacting to the stimulus around us rather than Christ who, who got with God and then got a sense of being centered and lived out of that place into the world. When we live reactionary lives, or we, 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 our identity and our security and our, our source from which we live is external world, our joy and our peace levels are yo-yoing up or down based on our perceived success the approval that we seek, whether we get it or we don't get it. Or, or maybe this one, and I must confess this is a personal one for me, how much I feel I'm in control in my life. You know? Oh, then, then I can be at peace. Then I can have joy. When I've got, you know, all, all, the, all the dials are under, under my own fingers, you know? Yet Jesus lived out of a place of quietness with God. He wasn't disconnected. It wasn't like a vow of silence and he just disappeared into the wilderness. No, no, no. No, he, he got with God, then he went back in. And James is going to talk to us in a second about going back into the life. But Jesus established his inner life in silence and solitude. He, he got with God. He had clarity about the outside world because of what he did in his inside world. And it was drawing up into himself that which he needed from God that enabled him to go out into the world overflowing. Now, when you go into the world overflowing, you guard yourself against so many uh, vulnerabilities. When we're full and when we're secure in God, we're not so needy in life. 
When we go into life searching, needing to be justified or validated or, or craving into life, that's when we're particularly vulnerable to all sorts of temptations. It was the strength of Jesus' inner life that meant it kind of broke the power of the temptation before it even came his way because he didn't need from that thing. We're vulnerable to all sorts of things that promise to give us what we lack externally if we're not full internally. Does that make sense so far? And Christ lived like this in order that we would be able to see it. It's these deep roots of Jesus, silence and solitude, that enabled him to resist temptation, enabled him to make wise choices and to live true to his calling. Let's stop for a second. Two minutes. How are we doing? How are we doing? Does this describe your life? In an age of frenzy and panic that is constantly making demands on you, is your private world ordered around silence and solitude to draw from God what you need, to, to make that your centering place and your base? I, I ask you this, but I want to say this, it's not easy. It wasn't easy for Jesus. Take a look at this. Jesus sneaks away for some alone time with God, but what happens immediately is there's a battle for Jesus' attention. There's this mini assault on Jesus' attention. He goes away to get away with God, and straight away what begins to happen is there's voices that start calling for his attention. Uh, Voices calling, Jesus, where are you? Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. Come over here. Somebody needs you. Jesus faced a battle to devote his attention to his private priorities. It's as if the urgent is always yelling, trying to replace the important in Christ's life. Does this sound familiar to anyone in the room? The apparently urgent, trying to usurp the important from Christ's life and your life and my life. Yet Jesus, as we come into land now in the final minute, gives us two keys, uh, one in this passage and one not. The, The first key is this, rising very early while it was still dark. Jesus was proactive about silence and solitude. The language Mark uses, Jesus rising very early, getting up while it was still dark. Mark is using deliberative language. Jesus was deliberate about getting away to spend time with God. It's not something that just happens. It's something that we've got to make happen in our lives is the first thing. But the second thing is this. Sometimes we see this in Jesus' life later. Sometimes life happens. Sometimes you plan to get with God and then a crisis comes your way, right? You've got to take a child to the hospital or something, you know, or, you, or maybe you've got a friend who's in crisis. These sorts of things happen to Jesus too. There's one instance where Jesus uh, is, is ministering and then he tries to get alone, but he can't because more people come. So he teaches again. And in the end, he sends the disciples out on a boat and then he disappears on his own and he goes up on a mountain to be with God. Although he missed the first opportunity, what we learned from Christ is when these crises come, Jesus doubles back. Because when you borrow from silence and solitude, you've got to pay back in silence and solitude. Otherwise, you're going to pay back in some or other kind of uh, not good for your life loss, you know? And so Jesus models, yes, life happens, but actually then double back and find a way to build that in. At the same time, don't beat yourself up when it doesn't work out the way you want it to. Bottom line is Jesus didn't allow the external noise of life to drown out the internal voice of his father. And this enabled him to live a centered life. How about you? 
Guys, I'm going to have to pause there. Why? Because I promise, and here's my commitment, to double back in the next month or, months or so to come and to teach properly about silence and solitude. But this is an appetite wetter we see in the life of Christ to get us started. Start somewhere. Start in your morning. Start once a week. Start with as much time as you can, but begin to practice the value of silence and solitude, getting in the presence of God in prayer with God. And it's in this place that Christ heart was cultivated and shaped and became like the will of his father. It's it's this place, your heart and my heart, sorry, let me say, is cultivated and becomes like the heart and will of our father in there. Now, what happens when a privately filled life Christ encounters the world? James, come and tell us. Can we change over? It's your choice. Okay, that's fine. Morning, everyone. Um, uh, as Luke said, my name is James, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the kind words, bro. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm the dude with the pink shirt and the young moustache. I haven't graduated full to the full beard yet, but maybe one day. Um, but it is a pleasure to be with you, and um, I'm really glad to be opening up God's Word. And why don't we just jump straight back in? Let's see the end of our story. Um, so Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages. So I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. As Luke shared just a bit earlier, from our passage we see Jesus' priority of getting alone with God. But and how we as followers of him should also get alone with God, full up on his goodness and love, and center our lives on his grand purposes and plans. Mark now uses the rest of this narrative to move us to see that, yes, Jesus' personal getting alone with God overflows now into a missional life of preaching and healing. As one commentator put it, the work of the Son of God is both an inward and outward work. Jesus cannot extend himself outward in compassion and in preaching and healing without first attending to the source of his mission and purpose with the Father. And conversely, his oneness with the Father, because he's going and getting with him, compels him outward into mission. Think of it like a car. Just as a car needs fuel to work, so too our faith. When a car is full, it can travel great distances at great speeds, depending on which road you drive in Cape Town. But regularly, it needs to stop and refuel, because if it doesn't, it will no longer be able to complete the work it was designed to do. As followers of Christ, we too are called, just as Jesus, to missional lives. But we can't extend ourselves outwardly in compassion and in living this mission without first going back to our source. And as we do this, we see that yes, it overflows in our personal lives, but it overflows to the people around us into mission the gospel and the good news moves us into the streets. So why did Jesus leave Capernaum? We see in verse 38 that he leaves to preach. What we may ask? Well, earlier in the chapter, Mark has told us that he went to Galilee in, chapter, in verse 14, proclaiming, yeah, this word proclaiming is the same word used as preaching, the good news of God. What is this good news? That the time has come and God's kingdom has arrived. 
Now he's calling people to repent, to turn from one way of life to another and believe in the message that he's come to share. This is why Jesus came and this is why Jesus had to leave. There were people in the nearby neighboring villages that had not yet heard this good news. We see here that mission flows from the very heart of God. And as we go throughout through scripture, we see that God's mission then overflows to his people. Throughout history, God has been calling and is still calling us today all over the world, now empowered by the Holy Spirit to go into our nearby neighboring villages to those who have not yet heard. As God's people here in the valley, can we follow our Savior and live intentional missional lives? Our God is a God on mission and we get to join him for the ride. Therefore, church, if we're called to go, I think there's a few questions that we should consider. Firstly, who is God calling me and you to? Who are the people that God is putting on your heart, opening your eyes to see that he loves them and wants to share his message? Perhaps it's your classmate in school, in maths, that guy's a little bit of a loner, who's a bit awkward, but who bears the image of God and he loves them. Maybe it's a coworker. Or that frustrating customer whom you constantly have to serve. Perhaps, parents, it's your children's friends' families. As you spend more time on play dates, perhaps God is saying, let's get on a mission together. Maybe it's your neighbors, the people you go for walks with, the people you join and have tea with in your old age homes. Maybe it's even your family members. A question I think we can ask is what hobbies and passions and interests has God placed in my life that I love to do? And can't we then take those things and make the circle a little bigger? Inviting friends and family who don't yet know and love them missionally. Perhaps you love cooking, having people in your house and around your table. Or perhaps it's being active going on hikes, going for surfs, going for a walk. Maybe it's a knitting club, a book club, soccer leagues, even a bowls day, play dates with friends and children, or even playing poker and drinking wine. I mean, we're Christian people living ordinary lives, but God calls us to extraordinary little ordinary things. Perhaps we don't just proclaim the gospel with our lips, but with our lives as well. How can we as a people show God's kingdom to the people around us? By how we love and how we listen, how we patiently deal with frustrating circumstances or people, how we work diligently and with integrity, and how we love and treat those who maybe disagree with us, how we are generous with our time and our money and our lives, and maybe how we as individuals or as a community come around those who've just responded to tragedy. The beauty of our passage this morning, the beauty of the gospel, is that it's not meant to be this heavy load, like I have to be on mission now with God, but actually we give our heavy loads to him and take on his light yoke and his easy burden 
He is indeed a God on mission and we get to join him. Can I say one more thing about these everyday ordinary acts? Especially living today in the valley is that relationship matters. I think we can all attest that words carry far more weight when they come from someone we know and we know that they love us and they care for us and we can trust them. Perhaps for you sitting here today, the biggest, boldest step you can take in living missionally and joining God on this mission is to build and invest into your relationships. Church, may we be a people who go into our nearby neighboring villages to those people who have not yet heard and share the good news of Christ's kingdom. The good news moves us to the streets. The end of our passage, or the end of Mark chapter 1, is where we'll spend the rest of our time. It's actually, Jesus is now on this mission in Galilee, he's gone, and Mark records an event that took place, and um, yeah, why don't we just jump in straight to verse 40. So a man with leprosy came to him, begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the, to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in the lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Here we see that Jesus is met by a leper. A person who had a skin condition that left him ceremonially unclean, according to the Old Testament laws. His condition was incurable highly contagious, destined to be quarantined off from the rest of society. He was an outcast. And all of this for something that he didn't do or bring on himself. I think of the last few months we've heard of the, the coronavirus pandemic that's been happening. A truly terrible and hectic uh, disease. And I do believe that the public reaction, the public responses to these areas and people who have been contaminated gives us a little window into what the leper and people with a similar condition might have experienced. Just as people who have contracted this coronavirus are quarantined off from the rest of society and the rest who haven't are in hiding, they go out of their way not to be exposed to any contaminated area or any contaminated person because if they do, they will get it themselves. Here, lepers were to be avoided at all costs. If you did come into contact with one and you did end up touching them, well then you immediately became unclean. Unclean in the eyes of the Old Testament and unclean in the eyes of the people. No longer were you able to be with your families, you were taken away from your friends, no longer able to hold down a sustainable job, cast out of the city and away from worship in the synagogue. This man before Jesus was a physical, social, and spiritual outcast with no community, no dignity, and no hope. And in a last-ditch effort, he rushes up to Jesus on his knees, face to the ground, 
begging, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This man had a daily reminder of his uncleanness before others and before God. And I wonder if we could feel like this as well. Sometimes our stains may be a bit better hidden from the public, but if we were to honestly reflect and consider, we can feel just as dirty. Firstly, I'm aware that perhaps there are some of us here whose uncleanness in the eyes of society are indeed physical. Outcasts from disease or from age, perhaps even outcasts financially, hungry, with no place to lay your head and no place to wash your face. And the way that people look at you, the way that people avoid you, not even extending a hand to greet, feeling unclean. Secondly, I, I'm aware that for some of us, the dirt in our lives is, not, is, is quite possibly because of what we've done. And the accuser and our consciences wage war on our minds because of what we did or what we still do. Perhaps it's past addictions, current ones, places where we've hurt people, the injustices we've caused ourselves, maybe it's even broken relationships with our families and friends, our children and spouse, leaving us feeling unclean. Lastly, I'm aware that for some, the dirtiness wasn't from what you did, but what was done to you. In our society, we have an issue of unfaithfulness, abuses of power, trust that may be broken, and specifically in our context, the issue of abuse sexually, gender-based violence, the terrible, disgusting reality of rape in our society, a great evil was committed against you. It wasn't your fault, but just as this leper comes to Jesus, we too feel dirty unworthy, unlovable, an outcast, unclean. Living in this broken world, we all carry dirt. We have stains that bear the mark of an unclean people. We're all lepers in one way or another. But what is Jesus' response? What is his reaction to the leper? Well, we see in verse 41 and 42 that he was indignant To be indignant refers to a feeling or a display of anger at what is perceived to be unfair. Jesus is angry at this man's plight, what he's experienced, the resulting pain and suffering and exclusion that came from it. Other translations refer to him as being moved with compassion and pity. The situation raised great emotion in Jesus. He's not indifferent. He doesn't back away in disgust or try to avoid him. No, he sees the man. He feels for him. And in the greatest shock to the audience that first heard this message, he stretches out his hand and touches him. Perhaps for the first time in decades. 
This is what Jesus does with the uncleanness of those who come to him as this leper did. Rather than avoiding or withdrawing from us in our dirt, he draws near and he reaches out. He is willing, but he's also able. Do we see verse 42? Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Usually when people got into contact with lepers and touched them, they would become unclean. But Jesus touches the leper And instead of becoming dirty, the leper is made clean. Jesus' cleanness is more powerful than the dirt we carry. Sam Elbury, a writer and pastor, put it this way. There is always more right in Jesus than there is what's wrong in us. There's always more grace in him than offense in us. There's always more forgiveness in him than sin in us. The very worst in us cannot compete with the best in Christ. We can't sully him, make him impure. He can only purify us. However deep our mess goes, however deep your mess goes, his holiness goes deeper. He will never exhaust it. Our every stain washed clean. Now verse 43 and 45 mark a surprising end. Um, We see that Jesus heals this man and then sends him out sternly saying, don't tell anyone, but go to the priest so that you can certify it and be ceremonially clean and rejoin society. Here, I won't go into details, but is a theme in Mark of Jesus' command to silence. He doesn't want to go public yet. But what does the man do? He does the exact opposite. And news spreads like wildfire. And what is the result of it? Can you maybe see it in verse 45? Do you notice where the leper is and where Jesus is? Before, the leper couldn't come into the cities, but lived in the desolate places. But now, because of Jesus, he's back in community, living in society. The outsider has now been brought in. And Jesus... Well, he was in the cities, but now he's forced to the desolate places. The insider has become an outsider. In one sense, Jesus actually was contaminated by this man. And I believe that this is the key for us here today. How can I know that I have really been cleansed in Christ from all my sin and shame? Because at the cross, He took the full extent of our, of mine, of your uncleanliness on himself. Every sin, every wound, every piece of brokenness and shame in our place. Jesus went through the ultimate exclusion, not just from people, but his own father. He was rejected that we might be accepted. He was made toxic that we might be made fragrant. He was shut out and disfigured while we were brought in and restored. He died that we might live. And this is how sinners enter the family of God. Because the son was forsaken, we can join the household of God. For us to be made clean, Christ had to be reckoned unclean. Jesus didn't look over our uncleanness. No, he conquered it. And he didn't just conquer it, he traded places with it. Because of Jesus, we who are unclean or who were unclean are made clean. 
And from here we see that throughout our passage, that our call is to go out, and the good news moves us to the streets. And this comes from a direct overflow of getting alone with God, the good news meeting us in the quiet. But both our private and our public lives are only transformed when we've first been washed white as snow, cleansed and brought inside the camp of God by Jesus going out the camp. Can I pray? Heavenly Father, we come before you as, as lepers with our stains, with our wounds, with our shame and sin. Yet we come before you with boldness because of what Jesus has done. That, Lord, you are willing to come to us, draw near, to touch us, to die in our place, that we might be made clean. God, would we meet with you in the quiet? And would you send us out to the streets? And would all this be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen.